This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Corn. It's Corn. What's up, Hollywood? They will never know that there are seven people in this room. This is awesome. Thank you so much for coming. So today we are talking about, I don't know if you could guess it, we're talking about penguins. A word that simultaneously refers to a clothing brand, a book publishing company, and a bird whose dance moves are, to be quite honest with you, a little overrated. Look, I tend to be partial to penguins 99% of the time, but did the writers of Happy Feet actually do their research? There's a bird called the red-capped mannequin that literally moonwalks, and we're here talking about penguins dancing. In addition to being the mascot of this podcast, penguins are a really cool animal. They play important roles in their ecosystems, they drive a lot of tourism revenue for many companies, and they built a whole town with a pizza parlor, a dojo, and no cursing allowed. (laughs) But unfortunately, the populations of many penguin species are declining fast, and it's not just because they're getting banned from the server. Some penguin species in warmer climates are already listed as endangered. Penguins in Western Antarctica may be some of the next on that list. So today, we'll discuss why penguins are important, what issues are driving their population decline, and what we can do to save the penguins. But first, it's time for Penguins 101. Penguins are a type of aquatic flightless bird that live primarily in the southern hemisphere. And while these guys are flightless, they're not fightless. Have you ever gotten into a street fight with a penguin? I won't get into how I know this, but these guys have a gnarly jab cross. Now, you might think of penguins as all living in Antarctica, but in reality, of the 18 species of penguin, only five of them are in Antarctica. Another four live on subantarctic islands, and the rest are in other regions of the southern hemisphere and the tropics, even as far north as the Galapagos Islands. I'm sure you're familiar with Darwin's theory that penguins evolved from tuxedos. (laughs) So... Normally, I would stop here and give some random fun facts about penguins, but since I have people here, I'm curious what your favorite things about penguins are. I want to make this a little interactive, so feel free. We have few enough that you can shout out. It doesn't have to be a fun fact, but let's, uh, let's get some cool things about penguins going. There you go. What was that? They mate for life. That is mostly true. (laughs) So apparently, uh, so penguins are, they lean monogamous, but I guess if a male and a female get separated from each other for whatever reason, they will move on and find a new partner. So I guess it's in the way that humans are monogamous. Like, (laughs) they try. (laughs) Any, uh, Any other cool penguin things? They can be gay. What was that? Food for whales. Food for whales. <laughs> I guess that's cool for whales. I don't know if <laughs> penguins are huge about that. They're kind of cute. They are very cute. They are scary throats. <laughs> cute, scary throats. <laughs> Put them together. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> what was that? They huddle for warmth. That is probably not true in the Galapagos, but certainly in Antarctica, I'm sure. And now we've gone off the rails. <laughs> so my favorite penguin things, uh, just off the top of my head, um, I can't remember which species. I think it might be the Adelie penguin. Um, they will, the male will carry a pebble to the female if it wants to mate, which is just adorable. Um, the other thing, and I'm curious your guys' take on this. So this has been a debate going back to the beginning of the sweaty penguin. We used to post penguin fun facts on social media each week. And I took a biology class in college, which don't recommend. And then I had to do another one. But in that class, we learned that if you take the family tree of birds and reptiles. Basically, birds and dinosaurs have the same common ancestor. And that ancestor is more recent than the common ancestor with lizards or with crocodiles or any other reptile. Basically, dinosaurs are more closely related to birds than to any other reptile. And if you actually make that out into a family tree, it says that if all of these things are reptiles and birds are also <laughs> in this tree, then birds should also be classified as reptiles. So we learned this in class. We were doing penguin fun facts, and I came in and I was like, all right, fun facts, penguins are reptiles. And one other person on the team had taken that same biology class and was like, yeah, they are. And everyone else was like, nope, no, they're not. <laughs> and unfortunately, our graphics person, Shannon, was in that group, so she refused to make the graphic. <laughs> So we never actually got to post that, but now that I have the microphone, <laughs> penguins are reptiles. There's, there's my fun fact. What, do you guys agree with me, or what do you think? Sure. Yeah? yeah? Shannon's not in the room, so we'll, we'll take that. Um, but beyond just existing for our amusement, penguins are actually really important. Penguins are food for foxes, leopards, and even crabs in warmer climate, and seals and seabirds in colder climates. That's right, there is another seabird called the skua that actually eats penguins, which like isn't technically cannibalism, but I don't know, seabird eating seabird, maybe there should be like a fine for that or something. Huh? It's okay, it's a reptile. Yeah, <laughs> those reptiles, I don't know what they're up to. And on the flip side, penguins eat squid and krill, keeping their populations in check. And that means a lot of species are connected to penguins on the food web. And if penguins suddenly vanished, those species would be severely impacted one way or another. Being aquatic birds that bounce between land and water, penguins also poop in a lot of different places. And called guano, <laughs> this poop is rich in nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus, and acts as an important fertilizer for these ecosystems. Penguins are also a big boost to the economy, and I'm not just talking about the pizza parlor. How that place stayed open is beyond me. Who could get all those toppings on that fast? Beyond the economic benefits of manifesting healthy ocean and land ecosystems, penguins can bring quite a bit of tourism to certain communities. 
Australia's Phillip Island, for example, is home to the world's largest colony of little penguins. And yes, that's the politically correct term. <laughs> Every night around sunset, visitors can witness what they've named the Penguin Parade. And I haven't been, but I'd like to imagine these penguins go all out, right? Dress up, get some floats, have cannon crows perform, the whole shebang. <laughs> but in 2007 to 2008, the Penguin Parade, while it did not feature the Eagles, brought in nearly half a million tourists who spent over $35 million. With that kind of revenue, according to the Southeast Council's Climate Change Alliance, over half the businesses on Phillip Island benefit directly from tourism. If we hop over to Dunedin, New Zealand, we see some even bigger numbers. Nature-based tourism relying on the yellow-eyed penguin returned $100 million to their economy in 2007, meaning each breeding pair of penguins could be worth $60,000. Like, damn, are they looking for a third? <laughs> but for all the penguin fun facts, I've got one not-so-fun fact. Penguins are under threat. According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, 11 out of 18 species are globally threatened. That yellow-eyed penguin that's raking in cash in New Zealand is actually the most endangered penguin species in the world, with only around 4,000 of them remaining. So why are penguins struggling? Well, a few reasons, and let's start with climate change. If you've listened to any of our other episodes covering issues in Antarctica, you may remember that climate change is not affecting Antarctica in a uniform way. Eastern Antarctica has been somewhat stable, while Western Antarctica is heating up faster than two penguins with $60,000 on the line if they can get it on. <laughs> and if we look at Antarctic penguins, their welfare is pretty much tied to that of their habitats. Take the Adelie penguin, a species which breeds all over Antarctica. Research has found that the Adelie penguin populations in eastern Antarctica have been stable or even increasing, but in western Antarctica, they're dwindling. Adelie penguins construct nests on ice and snow-free terrain with pebbles to keep eggs and chicks dry and out of any water. Precipitation and snowmelt can flood nests, influence the mass of chicks, and otherwise threaten chicks' survival. That helps explain why a 2016 study in Scientific Reports projected that by 2060, Adelie penguin colonies would decline by a third in Western Antarctica. But remember, penguins are aquatic birds, and as such are a little less concerned with what's happening on Antarctica, and a little more concerned with what's happening in the ocean around it. Adelie penguins are really picky eaters, with a diet consisting entirely of krill. Of course, if they were humans, they would immediately be featured on My Strange Addiction, like that one lady who ate nothing but french fries and cried when they fed her a carrot. <laughs> krill rely on sea ice for their habitats. With climate change driving the melt of sea ice, that means fewer krill, which then threatens penguins' food supply. Emperor penguins are another species that eat krill, though not exclusively. And on top of that, they use sea ice as a platform to hatch and raise chicks. This creates an issue as well. Baby penguins start out with what are called down feathers, which are really fine and specifically can't get wet. If it does, it gets all frizzy and takes a ton of product to fix. 
In all seriousness, it takes about three months for them to grow their first set of waterproof swimming feathers. So with sea ice melting earlier, that means baby penguins are more likely to get their feathers wet, which can lead them to freeze and die. Yeah, great for a comedy show. <laughs> Not all penguins are in Antarctica, though, so what's going on further north? For one thing, they all have crazy accents and they're heavily featured on Love Island, but besides that, there's good news and bad news. Good news is that these penguins are used to warmer weather and for the most part can handle temperature increases associated with climate change. The bad news is that often their food sources aren't so resilient. Penguin prey may either die off or migrate to cooler areas. And since penguins can't fly, they can't really follow the food. And unfortunately, I don't have the funding to open up my James Bond themed restaurant called License to Krill. <laughs> but the challenges really vary depending on the species. The endangered Galapagos penguin, for example, routinely sees species collapses during El Nino events. El Nino, if you aren't familiar, is a natural weather phenomenon in the tropical Pacific Ocean. Normally, there are winds blowing from east to, well, east to west. <laughs> Gotta turn it around. Blowing warm water from the eastern Pacific into the western Pacific. During El Nino, the winds slow down or can even reverse, making a whole bunch of warm water get concentrated in the eastern Pacific where the Galapagos Islands are. These warm waters can be brutal for the food supply for Galapagos penguins. And though this is a naturally occurring phenomenon, climate change threatens to make it more extreme. And in that scenario, Galapagos penguins could unfortunately lose out. Galapagos penguins also prefer to nest in small caves or crevices in lava rock, which are becoming harder to find due to sea level rise. Given all these climate challenges, you can imagine that penguins aren't the biggest fans of fossil fuels. They famously prefer wind energy. <laughs> but unfortunately, fossil fuels affecting penguins in more ways than one. On June 23, 2000, a 17-year-old cargo ship called MV Treasure sank off the coast of South Africa. On board was 140,000 tons of iron ore and 1,300 tons of fuel oil, leading to one of the worst South African oil spills to date. To their immense credit, the South African National Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds leapt, or should I say flew, into action, relocating around 19,500 unoiled African penguins, cleaning 19,000 more, and housing and caring for 3,300-500 abandoned chicks, over 20% of the total African penguin population at the time. And that's why I didn't try to memorize this. But despite this remarkable effort, an estimated 4,000 chicks and 2,000 adult African penguins died within the first six weeks of the spill. Now today, there are approximately 25,000 African penguin breeding pairs left. So think about the impact of losing that many African penguins today to an oil spill. It's hard to say whether or not that would cause the extinction of the species, but it certainly would push the species a whole lot closer. Was that just one fluky accident though? 
I wish I could say yes, but unfortunately, there have been new oil spills every few years affecting penguins. In fact, Wikipedia has a page titled List of Oil Spills Impacting Penguins with 56 spills on it. That's longer than Wikipedia's list of NFL players from Rhode Island. And it's worth noting that these oil spills are happening off of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Chile, home to the penguin species that are already listed as endangered. As much as we think of Antarctica when we think of penguins, it's actually those species in the warmer climates whose populations are in the worst shape, and oil spills only threaten to worsen that. And the list of penguin problems goes on and on. Humans routinely introduce non-native predators to penguin colonies. Several colonies of little penguins in Australia, for example, have been wiped out by dogs and foxes. Penguins are very susceptible to disease. And in fact, they can catch pathogens from other non-native animals, including humans. I mean, penguins were diligently quarantining during COVID, but <laughs> their pointy beaks and lack of ears kind of made it tough to get the masks on. And though it's internationally illegal now, there was a time where humans would actually steal penguins' poop to use as fertilizer, meaning penguins' ecosystems couldn't reap the benefits of those nutrients. This also means there was once a whole group of people whose job was penguin poop stealer. Like, imagine the LinkedIn profiles. <laughs> Ryan is an A-plus employee, can scoop upon command, takes initiative in plugging his nose, and not afraid to get his hands dirty, would recommend. But perhaps the threat that stands out the most is commercial fishing. Commercial fishing affects penguins in a few ways. For one, we're already stealing some of the penguins' dwindling food supply. In the Antarctic region, we actually fish krill for aquaculture feed and human nutritional supplements. And in warmer regions, our appetite for sardines and anchovies has contributed to the extreme collapse of species such as the African penguin and the Humboldt penguin. And that's a shame because who even likes sardines and anchovies? That's penguin food for a reason. There have also been instances where smaller penguin species get caught in nets at commercial fisheries. According to a 2013 study in biological conservation, it is estimated that more than 400,000 seabirds, including penguins, are caught in gill nets every year. And when a penguin gets entangled in a net, it has no way to escape and will sadly drown. I know it's a little weird to turn hopeful after talking about penguins drowning and freezing to death, but we've done it for 99 other episodes, so I think we can do it again today. First off, it's worth noting that not all penguin species are feeling these threats. The Gentoo penguin, in fact, is widely considered a climate winner. From 1982 to 2017, the number of Gentoo breeding pairs in Western Antarctica jumped from 25,000 to 173,000, even though climate change has warmed up Western Antarctica. Maybe that just meant there were more hot singles in the area. <laughs> As we compare to Adelie penguins, Gentoos are less picky eaters, faster swimmers allowing them more options, and are down to breed in places other than sea ice. Honestly, sea ice is the last place I'd want to breed in, second only to Florida. 
I know various penguins getting roped into being symbols for human issues all the time is kind of weird, be it tuxedo shopping or monogamy, but I really do find it cool to see a species adapt as well as the Gen 2 penguin just by being easygoing and laid back. If Gen 2 penguins can adapt to climate change, I'd like to think humans can too, right? Like, we can be easygoing and laid back. We can do that. So... Where do we go from here? How do we save the penguins? Well, if we're talking about Antarctica, there's not a ton we can do. We can take steps to ensure the fishing we do down there doesn't alter the ecosystems too much. Looking longer term, maybe the biggest thing is if we can actually get climate change under control, that would certainly be a big help. And we can also stop filming documentaries about penguins dancing. That would probably help too. The good thing, though, is that we do have a lot more control in the regions where the penguins are actually endangered. In addition to addressing climate change, we can take more concrete steps to prevent oil spills, not introduce invasive species, not overfish sardines and anchovies, and avoid or limit some of the more harmful human commercial fishing practices that are leading penguins to get caught in nets. These are things we have control over and could make a much more immediate difference. Obviously, we'd have to think through how to do it without creating ridiculous costs for fishermen or other stakeholders, but that's certainly a conversation worth having. But beyond just avoiding certain things, humans can also proactively help. One interesting idea I've seen is constructing nests for penguins. In some years, on one of the islands in the Galapagos called Mariela Island, Constructed nests have accounted for 43% of penguin breeding activity. That's right, I wasn't kidding when I said penguins have their own love island. Let's hope those constructed nests have hammocks, right? And even on the policy level, there are already regulations on things like hunting, taking eggs, or stealing poop. But some have suggested further measures could help. Given how penguins tend to be in very specific spots in the world, policymakers could consider specific protections in the areas where penguins live. That's a cool opportunity. You can crack down on a harmful activity in a specific region without going to an extreme and outright banning it or something. That can achieve your conservation goals while getting rid of some of the downsides. Obviously, conservation is really challenging, and I think it's even more overwhelming when we talk about a species like penguins who are all over the world. But a lot is in our control. And what's cool about penguins is that any penguin solution is also a solution for a whole bunch of other things. Every penguin issue has to do with how we've affected their surroundings. So every solution has to do with that too. And if we can address these issues, we'll protect an important species, help many tourism economies, and ensure no more LinkedIn profiles have the phrase poop stealer in it. What do you like about corn? It's corn. A big lump with knobs. It has the juice. I can't imagine a more beautiful thing. It's corn. I can tell you all about it. I mean, Look at this thing. Corn. When I tried it with butter, everything changed.
Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Heather Lynch, the Institute for Advanced Computational Sciences Endowed Chair for Ecology and Evolution at Stony Brook University. Dr. Lynch, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. First off, I noticed a lot of your educational experience was actually in physics. So tell us a bit about your background and how you made your way over to biology and ultimately penguins. Sure. Well, I have a a very non-traditional background for studying penguins. And in fact, I went to college to study chemical engineering, and then I fell in love with uh, physics, and I loved what I was doing, uh, but I didn't always feel that the questions that I were answering were necessarily as important as some of the questions I could be answering if I were working in you know, environmental sciences or issues related to climate change. I ended up six and a half years later uh, finishing with a PhD in biology. I ended up getting on a plane for Antarctica just a couple of days after finishing my PhD, and I haven't looked back since. So I've basically dedicated the rest of my career to trying to understand the data that we have uh, on Antarctic penguins. That's such an interesting journey. Um, And it's really striking to me to see how many different species of penguins there are, some in Antarctica, some in more tropical regions. How did penguins evolve to end up in completely different areas of the world? Well, penguins are a really interesting species because I think in our cultural, you know, mind's eye, uh, we think of penguins uh, synonymous with snow and icebergs and Antarctica, but we really should be thinking about the ocean. You know, penguins are are marine species that live all the way from the equator uh, to about as far south as birds go in Antarctica. And they're well adapted to life in the oceans. And that doesn't have to be cold oceans. Um, but they find ways of filling uh, various uh, niches uh, in the food web of the ocean. And in fact, most penguin species do not live in the Antarctic. There are only about five species that do live in the Antarctic, um, both in terms of species and in terms of just the sheer number of penguins on the planet. Most of them live um, either in the sub-Antarctic or actually in more temperate areas such as Africa, Australia, or New Zealand. Having worked in Antarctica, you've had an interesting insight into how penguins are affected by climate change, given that West Antarctica is melting so quickly and East Antarctica is quite stable. You almost have a control group you can compare to, which is really interesting. How have you seen penguins on opposite sides of the continent respond to changes in climate? Well, that's what's so interesting about penguins and climate change. I once wrote a paper about Uh, It was the first sort of global census of a penguin called the Adelie penguin. And we used uh, satellites and all sorts of published information to try and figure out how many Adelie penguins are there in Antarctica and how have their populations changed over time. And what we found was that globally, the number of Adelie penguins in Antarctica was actually growing, contrary, again, to people's expectations that climate change was having this uniformly negative impact on all the penguins in Antarctica. And the question that I got from the the Wall Street Journal, which took me back at the time, but would not take me back now, was how did scientists get it so wrong about climate change? And it made me really appreciate that the scientific community has done a really good job communicating what I think is the wrong message, which is that we have convinced people, we have communicated the seriousness, the negative impacts of climate change on species. And those impacts are very real and they are widespread. 
But at the same time, we have failed to communicate the nuance that some species will benefit from climate change. Or, as you say, in Antarctica, you might have a species that is benefiting in some sense from climate change in part of its range, even as it's disappearing from other parts of its range. And that's the situation that we have in Antarctica. We have both climate change winners and climate change losers in Antarctica. And in the case of the Adelie penguin, we have, we have some of both. Um, on the Western Antarctic Peninsula, the Adelie penguin is being negatively affected by the warming temperatures in that part of the continent. And yet on, in other parts of the continent where the climate is either stable or in some cases the sea ice is actually getting more um, extensive, Adelie penguins are actually growing in abundance. And so um, there is no sort of, um, you know, quick story as to how climate change is affecting the penguins of Antarctica. And you kind of touched on something that stood out to me, which is that penguins are more affected by sea ice than by perhaps land ice, which makes sense when you say penguins are marine species. But could you give some insight onto why that is? Sure. So, one of the big uh, links between sea ice and penguins actually comes about through Antarctic krill. And just about everything in Antarctica either eats krill or eats something that eats krill. But in some ways, it is the, the engine of the Southern Ocean food web. And what Antarctic krill want are, is sea ice, because sea ice forms essentially the nursery that protects and um, Allows, allows krill to, they feed on the underside of the sea ice and it also protects them from predators. So where we have sea ice declining, the concern is that Antarctic krill will start to disappear as well. And all three of the species that I study, the gentoo penguin, the Adelie penguin, and the chinstrap penguin, all of them rely in, in some or large part on Antarctic krill. And so that is one of the reasons why scientists like myself are very interested in studying the relationship between climate change and sea ice and sea ice and penguin populations. Whereas land ice uh, can have interesting impacts on penguins, but it's largely related to um, the, the existence of, of nesting space. So penguins need to nest these three species that I'm talking about nest on bare rock. And so actually, as glaciers are retreating, what we find is that some of these species are able to move in and the loss of land ice can actually create new breeding habitat, even as the loss of sea ice uh, means that we have uh, declines in the amount of food that's available to them in the ocean. So in March, we had a historic heat wave in Antarctica, which I have to imagine was not a fun week for Antarctic penguins. Um, do we have a sense at this point as to how penguins responded to that extreme event or maybe how they respond to those types of events in general? Well, fortunately, we don't have many opportunities to see how penguins are directly affected by those extreme, you know, warm air temperatures. Um, anecdotally, certainly when we're in the field, we do see that the penguin chicks and the adults are clearly trying to shed heat. Um, in many of the ways that, you know, your dog might try and shed heat. So you see them panting, they lie on their stomachs with their, um, their, their bottom of their feet sort of exposed to the air where they're, they're hoping to, to cool off, or they spread their wings to try and shed heat through the underside of their, um, their wings, their flippers. 
Um, so certainly they are behaviorally showing uh, that they're they're hot and they're trying to cool down. I haven't seen any evidence um, to suggest that that chicks are are sort of dropping dead from overheating. Um, although in other parts of the world that that actually can happen in the Antarctic, um, certainly the adults can always escape to the ocean where it's quite a bit cooler. Uh, but over time, the these extreme heat waves are going to have big impacts on both the snow and the ice and the marine environment. And those impacts are going to be very serious for penguins, but we might not see those effects for, for many years down the road. I presume they did not sweat, though. No, they don't sweat. And I think that they have, uh, in fact, I know that they have few adaptations to allow them um, to deal with extreme heat. In contrast to species that live, for example, in Africa um, or Australia that regularly encounter um, extremely warm air temperatures. And those penguins, many of them will nest actually in burrows underneath the ground um, to escape the heat there. So they're much cooler and they can escape the sun. Antarctic penguins have no way to escape except to go into the ocean. And for chicks that have not yet developed their permanent adult feathers, they don't even have the option of escaping into the ocean. And they're probably the most vulnerable to that kind of overheating. Although again, these events are quite uh, rare uh, and usually only last a couple of days. And, and there's been relatively few opportunities to observe chicks um, under these extreme conditions. Penguins obviously face a range of threats beyond climate, from pollution to commercial fishing. Among all these different threats, would you say climate change is just one of several, or would you say climate change has made itself stand out from the pack? Well, unfortunately, um, while climate change, I think, gets the most you know, press, I don't actually think it's the thing that, that is uh, most negatively affecting penguins right now globally. In fact, some of the major threats for penguins globally, uh, many of them are pretty, are pretty boring and routine, but they're not, in some sense, uh, getting, getting all the research dollars. And that includes oil spills from uh, maritime traffic, and that has had a devastating impact on African penguins, for example. That includes things like invasive species, dogs, cats, stoats, foxes. Um, you know, a fox or a stoat or a cat could wipe out a penguin colony uh, very quickly. Uh, coastal development, um, the loss of our beaches to hotels, uh, cars, ocean pollution, um, all of these things are, are major threats to penguins globally. And so while climate is certainly a really big factor for some species, particularly the Galapagos penguin and the emperor penguin, most penguins are actually threatened by things that we have you know, sort of the easy ability to address. And it's, it's kind of crazy that we don't address these issues. Climate change is not an easy thing to fix. And there are many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are working on that problem. Um, but some of these other issues are, are, are definitely within the control of communities to, to address. And I would hope that they do before um, we lose some of these more temperate species that have been threatened over the years. Do you have any sense as to why these uh, more local issues wouldn't be getting as much attention or research or funding? Well, I think, you know, like a lot of species that depend on our coasts, and that could be sea turtles, or it could be, um, you know, penguins or, or other coastal seabirds, um, 
every everybody wants to live on the the coasts, and we re- rely on an economy that's largely based on marine, you know, shipping and and ocean travel. And so it's that kind of development um, and those anthropogenic impacts are sort of built into our economy. So I think that, um, you know, we should be protecting our coast for lots of reasons. Marine, um, like oil spills is a particularly difficult one because it's difficult to know when there is a big oil. I should back up and just say, you know, what captures the, the headlines are major oil spills. And certainly in those cases, there's a big tanker that's listing offshore and it's clear where the oil is coming from. But many cases, you know, most marine pollution actually isn't because a major tanker capsized. It's because there's just a slow leak of oil from poorly maintained, you know, shipping infrastructure. And that kind of oil pollutes the ocean in sort of a low level chronic way. And it can have devastating impacts on birds like penguins, but it's very difficult to pin back to the company that's responsible. It's a problem that never really gets addressed. Obviously, we all love penguins. They're very cute, but they also provide a lot of important services to their ecosystems. So if anyone were to ask a question along the lines of why do penguins matter? Why should we put energy and resources into protecting them? How would you respond to that? As to why penguins matter, the analogy that I use is like going for a physical. So let's say you go for a physical and they do a bunch of blood work and they say, oh, well, look, your white blood cell counts are a little high or whatever. Well, then the doctor's not actually worried about your white blood cell counts. The concern is that there's something that has changed in your physiology that is reflected in higher blood cell counts, white blood cell counts that they don't understand. And that might be something trivial, like, you know, particularly, you know, long jog the day before, or it could be really serious, but they're not going to be satisfied until they figure out the underlying cause. And I think of penguin populations um, as being like that physical, that they are one way that we can monitor the health of the ocean. And until we understand why their populations are changing so radically, um, we should be really concerned that there's something fundamentally changed about the way the ocean functions. And so I always say that, you know, I'm not going to try and convince people that that penguins matter. Um, I think they matter. But for sure, I would like to convince people that the oceans matter. And to the extent that we're using penguins as a way of studying the, the functioning of the ocean, um, they play a really important role because they're one of the few things that depends on the ocean, but is... Um, polite enough, as it were, to haul out in the same place every year and to be on the scale of things relatively easy to count. And so um, they, they are the canary in the coal mine for how the Southern Ocean is functioning. And so we use them in that way as a monitoring tool um, for the, the ocean more generally. I know you've contributed to a lot of papers which discuss conservation as well. So I'm curious, if you were giving advice to policymakers or to people working in conservation about penguins, what would you say? Boy, that's a really good question. Um, I do, despite the fact that it works against my own best interests, I do always admit um, my opinion that, that Antarctic penguins are not the ones they should be most concerned with. Now, I say that despite the fact that um, if I were to get people very excited about Antarctic penguins, of course, money for research might flow from that. And I hope we continue to do the work that we do. But the ones that I stay up at night worrying about are actually the ones that are in more temperate areas, the ones that are impacted by things like chronic oil pollution or a loss of coastal habitat or invasive species. 
I think that there has been so much focus on climate change at the at the sort of international conservation level that we forget some of these um, much more basic things that we can do that are very tangible and very achievable um, to save penguins in these more temperate areas where they're coming into contact with human development in a more regular way than the ones um, in Antarctica. Yeah, I really appreciate you breaking down that nuance for us. I've got two more uh, quicker questions for you. First, uh, what is your favorite penguin species? Oh, well, hands down, uh, my favorite is the gentoo penguin. So the gentoo penguin is they're kind of gentle and kind and they're um, they have these really beautiful sort of mating courtship behaviors that are really nice. And they're not as sort of squawky and loud and annoying as some of their um, the species that they often breed with the Adelie and the chinstrap. So I do love the gentoo penguin. And that is one that you're most likely to see if you go to a zoo or aquarium um, because they are relatively easy to keep in captivity. And so you can see them um, here in New York City or, or in most of the other sort of major aquaria in the country. So they are beautiful and well worth a visit. Awesome. And then uh, my last question, this has been an internal debate on the Sweaty Penguin team going back two years, and I'm hoping you can settle this once and for all. I guess this is more a Linnaean versus phylogenetic debate, if anything, but here goes. Are penguins reptiles? Oh boy, gosh, that's one I'm going to have to ask my my departmental colleagues. I would say no, but but I I can see I can see why sort of evolutionarily speaking they have they have you know reptile ancestors. Maybe I'll put it that way. You know, and they when they look back in their family tree, um, you know, uh, grandpa and grandma reptile. I think that that's probably fair going back far enough. Yeah, we've had this debate for a while because. Uh... All of us who did like environmental majors learned in biology class that all birds are reptiles. And so we uh, took that to mean penguins were reptiles since penguins are birds. Um, but obviously there's debate as to just how you classify species like that. So um, very. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just going <laughs> to say, I will. If you look at um, if you look at penguin uh, ankles and penguin feet, um, if you if all you had was was you know a picture of a of a penguin ankle down, um, that that is as close to a living dinosaur as I think you will find. Uh, they are uh, remarkably reptilian from from the ankle down. If they have ankles, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they have ankles, but what we would think of as being their ankles, um, yeah. Uh, so it, it's they're they're kind of graceful and beautiful from the the shin up. Um, but from the, the shin down, um, they're, they're dinosaur all the way. Dr. Lynch, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure.